0: Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson.
1: And I'm David Common.
0: And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But
2: this is our first podcast.
0: CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the
3: CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark.
1: One, this is your life.
0: I want to take you back to 2007.
1: Two, this is your digital life. A
0: still wet behind the ears Spark is on the air.
1: Three, this is Spark. CBC.ca slash Spark.
0: Hi, I'm Nora Young, and this is Spark, a show all about tech, trends, and fresh ideas. And we're talking about social media. Hey, Dan, come here. What is it? Have you heard about this uh, new social networking site? It's called NoSo. Social network, like Facebook? You know know I hate Facebook. Apparently, even in 2007, a lot of people, including us, found social media overwhelming, distracting, and threatening to disconnect us from real conversation. I know that you hate Facebook, Dan. This is the anti-Facebook. It's for people who are totally overcommitted in their digital lives, like you. Have a listen.
2: My name is Kurt Biggenhoe, and I'm one of the creators of the No-So Project. It's a scheduled meeting or a non-meeting in cafes and parks, etc.
0: But social media was also something we were already kind of over.
2: Turning off, disconnecting
1: from everything.
0: Yeah, in 2007.
1: So no cell phones, no talking, no laptop, no email, etc.
0: Isn't that fantastic?
1: I kind of figured there'd be a little social in the networking, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. This week marks our 600th episode. Yep, that was our second episode, and this is our 17th season. Eek! It really doesn't seem that long. No doubt due to the rapid pace of technological change, there's always something new around the corner in tech. And yet, reflecting on all the changes we've seen over that time, certain ideas and innovations do return cyclically, and some startling nascent trends can take 10 or more years to suddenly be the next big thing. So this time, a look ahead at a few of the trends we'll be exploring in the next year and how they fit into tech and innovation since Spark's been on the air. On Spark, we've been lucky enough to talk to some of internet culture's movers, shakers, and pioneers, including this guy. Hello. So, we've been on the air for 17 years, but I have to say, you have a a real anniversary. Congratulations on 25 years of blogging. (laughs) When you say it like that, it sounds like an awful lot, doesn't it? (laughs) This is Anil Dash, and for as long as he's been blogging, he's been making cool stuff
1: online. How does it feel to hit that milestone? Um, you know, the ambivalence you always have about a big number, which is like proud of it. And also, wow, that's a long time, so that must mean I'm old.
0: <laughs> Anil is a longtime tech entrepreneur, and so he's seen a lot of change in online culture, from the early excitement and optimism of the indie web through the growth of global online platforms. It's safe to say that today, online culture and business has left most of us feeling pretty jaded and wary about internet hype. But there I was in the first week of 2024, reading Anil's blog, when a post all about optimism really struck me. It referenced a recent article he wrote for Rolling Stone called The Internet is About to Get Weird Again, a hopeful look at our lives online in the coming year. Yeah, I want to dig into why you're feeling this optimism at the beginning of 2024. Um, But first, one of the things that you've argued about the sort of current state of online culture is that we're actually seeing platforms and tools simply getting worse so where mm. are we seeing that
1: happen you know across the board i think there's a real uh, one example is ai technologies and that sort of broad family of things that people are talking about you know it, it's an interesting tool and so we're spreadsheets and spreadsheets did change a lot but it, it didn't become the only thing we do right and and sort of similarly, there's this sort of AI triumphalism of what happens when the tech industry in particular is in the throes of a new mania, is the kind of like this is you know this must be the hammer and everything is a nail, and and so we see that in something like search results where if I'm like, uh, what's the capital of Massachusetts? I want the answer, <laughs> right? Right? Like <laughs> I, I don't I don't want like a Credible speculation, (laughs) you you know, and, 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 and it's not ambiguous. Right. And so like, that's one really concrete example. And then there's lots of other stuff. I mean, I think of the, like, there used to be a a point where it was really exciting to see a new phone. (laughs) It's like wow. Like the first iPhone didn't take video. So when the Mm -hmm. next one had the ability to take a video, you're like, that is incredible. That's a breakthrough. That used to be a whole, you'd have to buy a whole device for that. Mm -hmm. And now I have it in my pocket. And now, you know, I saw an ad and I don't remember what brand phone it was, but literally the thing they're like, this is the new one. Was the ad right. campaign, and I'm like, <laughs> right? But what does it do? What is it for? Like, I know why you want me to buy a new. Here phone, you go. But I don't know. <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, like new is not a feature, right?
0: Can we talk just briefly a little bit about hype? I mean, to use a specific example, you were co-creator of the concept of NFTs, this <laughs> yeah. blockchain-based way of tracking the authenticity of digital works, and that was ten years ago. So, when you reflect back on the hype about NFTs a couple of years back, especially. What does that kind of tell you about the state of innovation and hype online?
1: Um, no, I, I worked with an artist, Kevin McCoy, who's who's just a brilliant technologist and artist. We did an art project at a museum about ownership and title to artworks, right? Using the technologies. That was what we did. And and actually, I think it's really telling talking about the hype cycle because we, we were really focused on attribution and who owns an artwork and who created it and making sure that those things are respected because that's actually a really important part of creative yeah. work, right? Nobody gave a damn. And, and I think that's important to say. That's not out of like some false humility. That is just like, I, I looked around and people like, oh, are like, what artistic attribution like that is not of interest to me. Right. But when hype came to the like cryptocurrency world and the blockchain world and whatever, and they were looking for like legitimacy what makes this seem like it's real? They're like, oh, all of a sudden we care a lot about art. <laughs> and I'm I'm a little skeptical that people that were not reading the placards on the wall at the museum before suddenly, because of their embrace of Bitcoin, came to love art. Right. Like, I think that's a that's an unlikely story. <laughs> but but because they could see it as a legitimizer, you know, they sort of grabbed onto it and they gave it the horrible name of NFTs, which is like not something anybody would ever say in real world. But also tellingly. Sort of famously at the peak of that NFT hype bubble, the thing people were talking about were these like pictures of like illustrations of apes yeah. or monkeys, right? And nobody was talking about the artists that drew them, mm. right? There was nothing more obvious and telling. If you say, I worked on a technology that was about artists retaining control of their work and people who appreciate art being able to have attribution of who created and, and, and owned mm. that work and then you take that concept you give it a different name and you say by the way we erased the creator of the work and nobody knows who drew it <laughs> right. i think that that is the clearest articulation of the the effect that negative hype that the you know opportunistic hype can have on taking a a well-intended technology and perverting it and also that a technology can be created like i said as a free and open creation in a museum at a nonprofit uh, event and then try to be captured by venture capitalists pumping billions of dollars into it who again like I say did not suddenly acquire a taste for art collecting
0: mm-hmm.
1: and do so in a way that erases the creators when doing when doing that I think that that is the most cynical version of how tech happens mm-hmm
0: Anil Dash is a tech entrepreneur and creator of cool stuff on the internet. He'll be back later in the show. In spite of his diagnosis of the sorry state of online culture and business today, Anil is actually optimistic about the future. We'll find out why he believes in a web renaissance in a little bit. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark... We're celebrating our 600th episode with a look at the state of innovation and why there are actually reasons to be optimistic about the near future of tech. Years ago, I came across tech designer Bill Buxton's concept of the long nose of innovation. In short, if you look at a shiny new innovation that suddenly bursts on the scene, you can usually find it was invented and innovated on a long time prior to that, before it actually came into popular use, where it starts to really make change at the broad cultural level. And that applies to our next story, which is all about the potential of applying video game narratives and techniques to journalism.
3: Kind of like if you were reading the news, but in game form.
0: There was a flurry of interest in news games, news stories that you can play like a video game, around 10 years ago. But with countless media outlets struggling to stay relevant and attract younger audiences, perhaps this approach is finally ready for prime time.
3: My name is Cece Wei, and I'm the editor in chief of The Markup, which is a nonprofit investigative journalism organization.
0: Cece is also a self identified gamer and has been involved in the research and development of multiple news games.
3: The stories that really come alive in game format are the kinds that are systematic, maybe have a complicated problem, and if you change one thing, something different will happen. And so games are really good if, as a part of the story, there's a lot of choices that people have to make, and they all have different types of consequences, and someone gets to sort of experience that for themselves in the game.
0: Of course, some people may see this as a kind of dumbing down. But Cece says games can explain complex topics in a way that really resonates. That's because they evoke emotion and empathy and get people actively participating in a news story rather than passively consuming it.
3: I think a great example is that there was a game a while back from a journalism organization about... Uber drivers and it applies generally to all ride sharing. But if you put yourself in the position of someone who is driving an Uber and all the different things you have to deal with, can you make money at the end of the day, right? And so it is simplifying it in the sense that it's only going to put you through say like a week's worth of drives. but. It is actually running you through a lot of the common things drivers have to deal with. Something happens to their car, right? There's going to be um, some sort of promotion that entices you to drive more because you'll earn more money right now, but then it'll also do all of the math and show you that in real time every day. And then at the end of the week, one of the takeaways for the game was actually how hard it was to really make that much money, even though you're doing a lot of work. I thought that was very effective, right? Games are giving you sort of a glimpse into this complicated system. It should effectively help you understand why it's complicated, but it's also not, you know, supposed to be a simulation of the entire actual thing, which would then just be real life.
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so it sounds like two of the particular strengths would be one that you're putting the players putting themselves in somebody else's shoes, but also you're able to kind of run different scenarios and see what happens if you change a variable.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, I think Bloomberg made a really good game a couple years back as well when all of the journalism around Amazon and how it treats its workers in warehouses came out, right? Basically, workers being asked to fulfill and box orders at a rate that seems pretty impossible. And that going to the bathroom really penalizes you because you didn't spend that time boxing. And so they just made a very simple game, which is you are a worker, you're assigned to pack a certain number of things, and you have to run around all over the warehouse getting the items that people ordered. How many can you pack? And people just get the emotional feeling of what that's like Mm -hmm. very quickly. And I would say that's one of the other powerful things about news games is that there's this emotional resonance because you experience the emotion. You didn't read about or watch someone else experience that emotion.
0: Yeah. So related to that, why does playing a story help some people kind of remember it better or connect to the content more deeply than if you were to, you know, read an article or or watch a video?
3: I think the key is two things. One is the emotions are your own as opposed to you observing them, kind of like we just said. But then the other thing is that because you are you are the one taking all of the actions in the game, you actually feel very different when there's consequences. Right. So let's say um, this uh, packing warehouse game that we just talked about, if you go through, you're frantically trying to meet your quota, you meet it and then the next day you don't meet it. And in the game, it tells you, you know, you get a warning. If you get three more of these warnings, you're fired. If you feel like that's unfair, that's a very different sense than us reporting out someone's story, right? In both cases, you will understand the feeling of whether or not it's unfair. But in one case, it's sort of generated by yourself. And as we know, a lot of people in their memory remember how things made them feel Mm -hmm. and not necessarily all the exact details and words and facts.
0: I understand one of the biggest news games you created is called The Waiting Game. So what's that story about and how did you go about telling it?
3: It was about the asylum-seeking process in the United States. And in the U.S., there are sort of five categories of reasons why someone is eligible for asylum. Okay, And what we did was we did a lot of reporting, trying to figure out people's real stories under each category, right? And so we worked with lawyers who had direct access to people who were going through the process now, who have represented them in the past. We looked at people's affidavits and what they said when they first came into the country compared to later. Um, We even went to some of the immigration asylum hearings. And then we created a game. Basically each scenario, there were five total for each category was based off an actual real person's journey. And you had to live through their journey day by day from the moment they decided to try to come to the U S To the moment in which a decision was made about whether or not they'd be allowed to stay. And so that's part of the suspense. But the game, we decided to take a very specific approach, which was, I didn't need you to live through a year's worth of this experience in order to get something out of it. That was too high of a bar. So what we decided actually is that one of the common experiences that we heard from people uh, as we were doing these interviews is that it is a terrifying experience because it's so monotonous. So basically day to day, especially once you're in the country, like essentially nothing happens, but any day something could happen, right? And you just don't know, like nothing is for certain. You're not guaranteed specific dates by which something happens. Maybe you talk to your lawyer and that feeling is actually quite easy to get across to people. So you only have two options in the game. You can move forward to the next day or you can just give up. Those are your two options every day. And every day you get sort of slightly new text that describes what happens that day. Sometimes there's a major event and so you'll learn more about it. But if you ever choose to give up, the game tracks how many days you lived through just by clicking one day at a time. And then it'll tell you how many days this real person had to experience in real life, whose life you're playing, right? And gives you that direct comparison And I think there's something powerful about that moment where you realize, like, I had enough by this time, but this person had to actually live it.
0: Yeah. So interesting. Although, you know, I mean, as a journalist, you know that we're taught this idea of balance, right? So is there a way to deal with that within a kind of video game scenario where you're getting at multiple sides or arguments pro and against?
3: Yeah, so the way that we tried to do that is through selecting the people that we were basing each scenario off of. So we wanted to cover very drastic different situations, and then we specifically were looking for people who had experiences with different parts of the system, right? So some people had a lawyer that were that completely just were ineffective, did not really represent them. Another person had someone who was very good. And so we started out reporting out many, many stories, and then slowly winnowed it down to these five, so that people could get these various different experiences and understanding.
0: Yeah. So beyond this sort of narrow idea of gamification, what do you think effective video game design more broadly can teach journalists when it comes to engaging an audience? For example, things like narrative arcs and and interactivity and so forth.
3: Yeah. You know, what's so interesting about really popular games that aren't in the sphere of journalism is that they are able to get people to learn things that they probably otherwise would not learn or do things they probably otherwise would not do. Uh, I have one personal example, which is there's a UK company that made this mobile game called Zombies Run. And it's a game that helps you exercise, helps (laughs) get you running. But while you're doing it, you're listening to these episodes and they're voice acted fully, like full production voice acted episodes where you're in a zombie scenario and you have to run, right? And the amazing thing about this company is that they work with Naomi Alderman who wrote The Power to write sort of these episodes. So the, it's really compelling story. And it got me to run when I absolutely hated running. And then I think now they have over 10 million users or something like that. It's sort of a way to make something that maybe you theoretically want to do just more appealing and interesting, especially if you're interested in stories.
0: Although, I mean, you must have had this experience. Sometimes as a reader or a viewer, when I engage with an interactive story at a news website, it feels kind of bolted on, you know, like there's sort of effects and there's images or stuff moving all over the screen, but not for any real motivated reason.
3: Yeah. So that's, you know, a whole critique of general interactive design, right? What is the purpose behind what's happening? And you will most often feel that way. And I certainly feel this way when people are animating something just to animate it and not because it's helping you understand anything. I think this happens every cycle where someone comes up with something new or new kind of effect. It's kind of like in a presentation, like slide deck, you could like crossfade, right? (laughs) At the very beginning, everyone thinks it's really cool. And then quickly, no one likes it anymore. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about innovation and why, in spite of it all, there are reasons to be optimistic about the solutions tech has to offer. Right now, my guest is Cece Wei. We're talking about using gameplay and other video game techniques in news stories. As I mentioned earlier, we first started hearing about news games 10 or more years ago. So why is there such a renewed interest now?
3: I think the reason why the approach got more popular is because of something else that's happened in journalism, which is that around 10 years ago, people really started taking seriously, let's hire people who know how to write code inside of newsrooms, right? And that enabled uh, way more outlets to be able to do things like their own data journalism, to do interactives online the elections trackers that we see live every time there's a major election right but once these coders started going into newsrooms what's interesting is that now with that with that foundational skill set you can start trying to create games as well right and so for the right idea and the right story that makes sense and i think the marriage of how to pick them plus the skill set has probably been one of the most difficult things in journalism because not every story is a good game, right? And so all of those things have to come together. How do you think
0: the power of video games and harnessing that might help media outlets stay more relevant or restore public trust?
3: You know, I think it's one of those things where following like how technology is actually used by people in their daily lives, right? Mobile games have become so popular, And have brought in so many people who would definitely not consider themselves quote unquote gamers, but they play games because it's fun, it helps pass the time or de stress, right? And there are lots of opportunities for journalism outlets to try to enter that space and provide sort of some sort of de stressing experience in addition to maybe the more stressful sides of news that you're reading. You can see little snippets of this in some of the sort of popular outlets today. So Buzzfeed sadly is not doing their news operation anymore, but they used to have a games team that was really popular because it would teach you some things and then other things are just silly and for fun. And they had a mix. Nowadays, um, the New York Times has a totally separate games team and they've had the crossword forever, right? So journalism has provided people with games entertainment for a very long time. But now they have crosswords and they have new games that like millions of people play on a regular basis. And some of the things that I've heard folks there say is that readers want to play the game and then they're ready to read the news afterward. But they don't want to just start off with the hard news of the day. And that's another interesting way, right, that games can really help people engage with journalism and almost sort of um, feel like it is not just the place that I read about things to get stressed out. So
0: if there's so much good about this kind of thing, what are some of the hurdles holding newsrooms back from making more news games or just using video game design techniques more broadly?
3: A hundred percent. I think the biggest hurdle is the investment. So games take quite a long time to make. But when it comes to uh, taking advantage of can games help people learn something? I think the biggest hurdle there is one spotting the opportunity because people first have to think of games as an option when they're doing their journalism to even say like, hey, maybe this should be a game. And then two, you do have to have people with the skill set to turn it into a game. And something that I am quite curious about since you know AI has been so hyped over this last year and will continue to be, I'm sure, is that can AI make game making somewhat easier for people? Is that going to be a path? Because it is something that is so code intensive uh, or can be so code intensive, let me say.
0: Do you think that within newsrooms, there's still, is this still controversial at all? Like, are there still sort of old timers like me who are like, wow, video games? <laughs> <laughs> or, or is this kind of accepted as a legitimate, you know, bow in the quiver of how we tell
3: stories? Oh, that's a good question. I think that is all depending on people's exposure, right? So if the newsroom has done a game before, and they've seen what it's like, I think people are much more open to it. If they've never done it before, I think it would be rare unless there was someone who was particularly motivated for that to happen. But the reason why I think um, more broadly it's palatable now compared to 10 years ago is because the difference between a game versus an interactive element that you see online is actually just a slight difference in perspective. I'll give you an example. I once made a a game. This was never published because we did it at an event. But uh, we were looking at basically the locations of hospitals in a city and the ambulance sort of uh, times. If you were to call because someone had a heart attack, how quickly could they get that person to the closest hospital, right? Now, a normal interactive is basically like a map. And then you can put in, say, your address where you normally are most of the time. And then we would just tell you how quickly could an ambulance, on average, get you to the five closest hospitals. That's the interactive. The game version, uh, which we ended up making, and it was incredibly fun to play, we would drop people into random addresses in the city, and you would have to drag them to a, in a hospital. And then we tell you immediately if that person survived or not, the heart attack. And as you're doing it, there's a time limit um, of how long you have, and you have to save a certain number of people. And what happens in this game is that you end up learning the statistics of both how long the ambulance takes as well as how good the hospital is at treating heart attacks, which is another piece of real data that we put in there. And then at the end, we sort of like give you all the information as if it was a normal interactive. And so it's just a different way of engaging with real data sometimes.
0: Yeah. And just finally, looking ahead at uh, 2024, what other kinds of interactive journalism would you like to see more of in the media landscape?
3: I feel like I would really, really like to see more ways of using games to help people understand complex things. I think that's actually the probably most useful thing that games can do right now, especially because technology is getting more and more complicated. The concepts themselves can be quite simple, but because of all the jargon and the words, right? And this sort of I think there's an interest in technology staying mysterious for some people as well. And so I think games can really help people understand, oh actually, I can understand technology. It's just not being explained very well to me. (laughs) Um, And I fully believe that, especially as someone who sort of runs a newsroom all about covering tech. Anyone can understand anything about technology. It's just about whether or not you can explain it right.
0: Amen. Thanks so much for your insights on this, Cece.
3: Yeah, it was great talking to you.
0: Cece Wei is the editor-in-chief of The Markup.
2: Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q... With Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes
1: feel like I have this desire to like perform, to be a version of myself that
2: people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Laura Young, and this time on Spark to mark the 600th episode of the show. Yikes! We're talking about some of the ideas in tech that have us excited about the new year and reasons to be optimistic about the future of innovation. As we talked about with CC Way, the idea of news games and learning from video game storytelling more broadly has been floating around for a while. But as William Gibson famously said, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. In the case of news games, we not only needed the idea, we needed the conditions on the ground. More people with phones, more people accustomed to playing games, more coders in newsrooms. For our next story, I'll look at what happens when innovation goes from the theoretical to the first glimpses of the practical, and what an exciting place that is to be. Back in 2016, we looked at the possible future of quantum physics and quantum computing. We even visited the University of Toronto's Centre for Quantum Information and Quantum Control. This time, to hear about the developments in QCs since then, we take a trip to Canada's own Quantum Valley in Waterloo, Ontario.
2: My name is Alexandre Cooperoy. roy I'm a research associate at the Institute for Quantum Computing at the University of Waterloo.
0: Alexandre is also senior technical lead at the Institute as part of their transformative quantum technology program. IQC has been at the forefront of quantum technology development for the last two decades. And Alexandre is leading a team that's building a quantum simulator.
2: Quantum computer is a general purpose machine that performs algorithms. Quantum simulators are quantum processors that solve quantum simulation problems. They are effectively the same, it's just that a quantum simulator is used to solve quantum simulation problem in particular.
0: We tend to think of quantum technologies as entirely futuristic, but they're already out there working.
2: Quantum technologies takes many different forms, sensors to measure quantity like uh, electromagnetic fields, small antennas, sensors of temperature, etc.
0: Not to mention first-generation quantum technologies like lasers and even the mechanics behind light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. While these are all around us, quantum computing, which is a subset of this field, is still very much in its infancy.
2: There is no, at this point in time, a fully functional, fault-tolerant quantum computer. However, there's uh, many different activities going on around the world trying to bring quantum computers as a real technology, including some of our activity here in Waterloo.
0: With many different groups around the world working on this high-profile cutting-edge research, we wanted to learn more about what it's really like to be in the trenches building one of these systems.
2: There's many different ways about which you could go about building a quantum computer. And at this point in time, there is no good way of building a quantum computer. So the first basic requirement is having access to uh, quantum systems, and you can assemble those quantum systems uh, from the ground up using many different components. In particular, uh, you could uh, use individual atoms, and these atoms can encode quantum information. And by performing operation on these atoms and making sure that they interact with other atoms, you can effectively implement algorithms that uh, effectively process quantum information.
0: And what you're talking about at the atomic level, is that I mean, what are we are talking about? Is this a principle that simultaneously a wave and a... Can you explain that to
2: me? Yeah, Sorry. no, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that can be simultaneously described as a wave or a particle. And uh, oh, there's many interesting properties of quantum particles that we don't observe in our daily life. And uh, luckily, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've developed the tools to actually uh, manipulate these properties. And now we're at a point where we can engineer these properties into practical devices like those uh, quantum computers we're discussing now.
0: And so at a conceptual level, how do quantum computers compare to regular old classical computers?
2: it's very important to recognize that classical computers are very powerful and uh, quantum computers are fundamentally different in that they solve a few problems with uh, a significant advantage of a classical computer, but it doesn't mean that quantum computers solve all problems that classical computers do, meaning that it's not necessarily true that you would use a quantum computer and suddenly you would do better at adding 3 plus 5. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for a simple problem, classical computers are, are extremely efficient, but there are a few problems for which no known efficient classical solution exists, and this is where quantum computer uh, promised to make an impact. One such problem is factor Large prime numbers, and this uh, could potentially be used for cryptography applications.
0: So, from what I understand, a key difference is that while in classic computing a bit is either a one or a zero, in quantum computing you're kind of capitalizing on the fact that it could be a zero and a one or a spectrum in between those two things. Do I have that right?
2: Yeah, you have that right. So typically in a classical computer, we encode information in bits, uh, and these are discrete state, either zero or one. And the nice thing about uh, a quantum bit or a qubit is that it can be placed in either a zero or one, or a superposition of zero and one.
0: And so I realize this may seem like a bit of a mean-spirited question, but if we have these concepts, why is it so difficult to actually build a functioning quantum computer? Like, where are the barriers here?
2: Yeah, so quantum particles, they're somewhat uh, a social uh, individual in that they like to be isolated from the rest of the environment. And uh, in particular, if you observe them, they will lose their properties. So to take the best advantage of quantum particles, you need to work with them in a very controlled and isolated environment. And this effectively goes against the requirement to control them. So there's somewhat this trade-off between accessing large quantum anybody systems that are isolated from the environment, while at the same time maintaining the ability to control and uh, read out their state. And it actually took uh, decades of uh, hard experimental work to come to the point where we can actually do that in a controlled environment.
0: So it has to be, in some sense, isolated, but not too isolated.
2: Yeah, that's correct, right? So you need to have the ability to read out those uh, the state uh, encoded into those quantum particles. And you need to have the ability to do that in a way that you only access as much information as you need to continue with your computation, but not so much information that you collapse the state of your quantum particle and effectively lose its intrinsic quantumness.
0: Mm-hmm. So even in theory, is there a future where quantum computers replace our existing regular old PCs and MacBooks?
2: Well, it's hard to predict at this point. And of course, some uh, futuristic people might see a point in time where those uh, quantum computers are embedded into our body or into our brain. Mm. Uh, But very practically, what we're going to see is somewhat of a hybrid format, where on the one hand, we have those uh, supercomputers working in parallel with quantum computers and those quantum computers effectively address a few uh, set of problems for which they, uh, they can truly deliver an advantage.
0: So you're leading a team at Waterloo's Institute for Quantum Computing, researching building a quantum simulator. So could you tell me about that work and where it stands now?
2: Uh, I very much hope that you could see it real. So it's uh, a large garage-sized room in which we're uh, building our quantum simulator. And of course, uh, in the future, we imagine uh, bringing this down in scale and uh, we're using neutral atoms. And it involves a lot of lasers, optics, mechanics, ultra-high vacuum system. And we're bringing all those parts together. Uh, So now at this point, we have the ability to trap hundreds of uh, individual quantum particles. We build a microscope so we can uh, image uh, those individual atoms on a sensitive camera. And now we're in the process of uh, addressing the individual quantum state of those particles so we can effectively uh, start doing meaningful calculation.
0: Wow. Wow. And, and why does it need to be the size of a garage? Is, does that have to do with the isolation? or
2: Yeah, so the reason we need a garage is that there's still... The, the way you go about building a quantum computer is not that you can just go on Amazon and, and buy, it, <laughs> buy your kit and assemble it. Yeah, so right. th- th- that, that's what you'd like. <laughs> but you need to more or less identify what you need, buy the component and bring them together. And uh, currently, we're effectively uh, limited by the size of our lasers. So we have those mm. really large lasers that produce uh, high-power lasers beams to manipulate the atoms. But you could imagine in a few decades that we miniaturize those lasers and we learn better what we need to build those quantum computers could effectively uh, end up uh, potentially being the size that you can um, put in your pocket. Mm -hmm.
0: So looking more broadly, what are some of the interesting ways that you've seen the boundaries of quantum technology be pushed for some sort of new and innovative applications?
2: Like a few decades ago, if we had that conversation, it was mostly like pen and paper theory. And uh, people suggested that a quantum computer could be built, uh, but nobody actually knew how to go about doing it or even thought that it would be possible. So there's been a lot of work that has been done. And uh, really, there's been progress all across the board in advancing technology. So more powerful lasers, faster control electronics. And by bringing all those technology together, we now have the ability to image and access individual quantum particles. So in our lab, for example, we have built a microscope uh, and the same kind of microscope that biologists use to look at uh, viruses such as COVID-19. And we're using this microscope to look at single atoms, And now that we've taken an image of this uh, single atoms, we have the ability to move it in space. And this is something we could not do 10 years ago. And yeah, that's truly amazing. So now you could imagine you have a microscope, you can trap a single atoms, you can trap another atoms, you can trap up to hundreds of atoms. You can prepare any configuration, a chain, a grid, a ring. Students like to make pictures of themselves using atoms. (laughs) You can play uh, 8-bit video games using atoms. So uh, uh, it's this level of control that we have. And now we can engineer interaction, make those atoms effectively talk to one another and uh, study in a very controlled way the physics. So it's very interesting for scientists. And now more and more we're seeking, okay, now that we learn about the world, we learn better about physics, can we use that for real application? And this is where the engineering come into play and the connection with applications uh, also come into play.
3: You are listening to Spark.
0: This is Spark from CBC. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about innovation as we mark the 600th episode of Spark. Right now, my guest is Alexandre Cooper Roy, an experimental quantum physicist leading a team to build a quantum simulator at Waterloo's Institute for Quantum Computing. He says that while quantum computing has the potential to be used to undermine cybersecurity, he doesn't see immediate negative impacts from this technology.
2: We like to think like technology and ethics. For example, atomic energy, there's a lot of uh, discussion whether it's good or bad. Similar for AI, we believe that intelligent machine could come into play and effectively replace humans. In terms of quantum technology, I don't see uh, fundamental issues. However, the question is who will have access to those quantum computers? Uh, And at this point, you could imagine governments in particular, government whose trust is uh, doubtful or uh, dictatorship or, or authoritarian government that have the resource to develop those uh, technology and might use it for nefarious purposes. So it's less about the technology having nefarious impact than uh, how societies are going to uh, use those technologies. But uh, other than that, like you could imagine, a government securing access to a quantum computer and uh, disrupting the internet and secure communication and potentially leading to bank fraud. Of course, I think it's important to recognize that technology, as always, bring benefit to the world, but might also have a negative impact that we need to consider.
0: Right. So potentially a bad actor could pose concerns about cybersecurity and things like that in the same way that we've experienced with classical computing.
2: Yes, that's correct. And uh, there's also like this uh, ideas of uh, inclusion in making sure that uh, everybody get to benefit from the technology so there's not a differential impact where quantum computers benefit those uh, in power, but not the rest of the society. And this is something we've done very well in Canada. In ORLAB, for example, the quantum simulator that we're building is a shared access quantum simulator, and we hope to bring together the scientific community so that they can use it to advance their research activities. And then we very much hope to connect with early adopters in the industry and the government sector to make sure that we can make productive use of our technology and everyone benefit uh, either directly or indirectly.
0: Even though this technology is still under development, we've certainly been hearing a lot of talk lately around the quantum computer. What do you make of all the buzz about it these days?
2: Yeah, the buzz is a great thing, and we just need to be careful about what we hear. So (laughs) uh, for a long time, this was an academic field of research, and uh, scientists tend to be quite honest about the capability of their machine. And now that uh, private companies have been interested in the technology and the potential see economic benefit of uh, delivering on uh, quantum computers, we hear a lot of uh, hype So these are partially true statements, but they tend to be overly optimistic. So I think it's uh, great to hear the interest is growing in uh, quantum technology. It's great to see that people recognize that quantum technology might impact our society and are willing to invest their time and energy and also their money in advancing the field. Uh, However, we should just be conscious that it's uh, technology in development and that uh, uh, it will take a few more years before we see the true impact being delivered.
0: Yeah. I mean I know that we're talking about quantum computing solving different problems than classical computing but could it potentially be used for all of these extremely resource intensive applications that we have now like in machine learning I mean for example we know that large language models like ChatGPT need to be trained on tons of data and that takes energy is there potential there for this technology
2: Yeah that's a very good question so someone could argue, let's replace classical computer with a quantum computer, but there's no real reason to believe that a quantum computer will do better at machine learning. However, you could ask, how could we make those computer or supercomputers less energy intensive so that we reduce the amount of energy that they consume and also reduce the amount of energy needed to cool them because they release a lot of heat. And uh, this is where quantum materials come into play. So over the last 50, 60 years, the semiconductor Electronics has power most of our electronic devices, ranging for radios, TVs computers, smartwatches, smartphones, etc. And these semiconductor electronics rely on moving charges into uh, tiny metallic wires and release energy. So potentially going beyond semiconductor electronics towards something like semiconductor spintronics, which effectively use the spin of the electron as opposed to its charge to process information, could lead to more energy efficient materials that in turn could reduce the energy consumption of those supercomputers.
0: Yeah. And you knew I was going to ask you this, how far off are practical, scalable quantum computers?
2: Yeah, so already we're seeing early demonstration of quantum error correction code, and there's uh, a lot of excitement going on in that now we have the ability to test a lot of the theoretical ideas we've been developing over the last two decades. And uh, given the enthusiasm and the resource being invested, the progress is now accelerating. So it's really hard to predict because technological progress is nonlinear. So we'll see significant progress within the next three to five years. Most optimistic people say within a decade or so, we'll already see at small. Scale a uh, meaningful problem being solved. You could imagine within two decades uh, having those quantum computers being deployed at scales and being used uh, on a daily basis to solve meaningful problems.
0: Alexandre, thanks so much for your insights on this.
2: Oh, yeah, thank you uh, so much, Nora. It was so much fun.
0: Alexandre Cooper Roy is a senior technical lead at the Institute for Quantum Computing at the University of Waterloo. Quantum computing and quantum technologies are definitely stories we'll keep our eyes on in the year ahead. One of the reasons I love talking to researchers on Spark is the excitement and motivation they have for technologies that may only come to fruition years or decades later. But it's still surprising how things can go from outer limit tech to the everyday in the blink of an eye look at generative AI, surely the biggest tech news story all through the past year. Even though it was in development for a long time, the sudden leap forward in tech like ChatGPT even surprised many experts in the field. This year, we'll continue to cover AI from how it's shaping the work world to new ways we'll use it in everyday life. Earlier in the show, we talked to influential tech entrepreneur and internet pioneer Anil Dash about how we got into the sorry state of internet culture we seem to be in now. So it might surprise you to hear that Anil is actually optimistic about tech in 2024, as he outlined in an article for Rolling Stone called The Internet is About to Get Weird Again. So why does he think we're moving into a web
1: renaissance? Why does hope spring eternal? I mean, some of that is what, what's the pathology in my own mind that lets me keep being optimistic, but, but at a, a, a factual level, looking at technology, there are, there are things we can look at in systems that allow for the good thing to happen. So when designing a technology system, a great example is podcasts. Hmm. If people think about podcasts that they listen to, it's, a, it's a, it's a casual throwaway line, usually at the end of a, of a podcast. You can listen to us anywhere that you get your podcasts. You've said it. People say it, right? It is a radical statement. It is a political statement. It is a technical architectural statement because what it represents is a system that was designed to let anybody run their own podcast and to be able to consume it without regard to like one company controlling it. And you can make different choices. One example is like, I I have a friend who's a journalist who moved uh, his podcast from one publisher to another because he could take what's called the feed, but like the source of it with him. The reason that was possible was a technological architecture that enabled that level of control, agency, autonomy, freedom. And you can design systems that have those traits and they look like the other stuff. So why should podcasts be so different from say TikTok, right? Isn't it just a thing that's streaming media at you? Yeah. Like, Haha. And why is it that, you know, on TikTok, you have a for you page that has a completely opaque algorithm that, that people have been able to form conspiracy theories about why it's showing you what it shows you. But nobody's like, why am I listening to this podcast? Mm. They made a choice. They established a relationship. They feel like a connection to that creator. And so what's happening is the systems that are more podcast like, that are more open, that are what I think of as more about the web than about companies, you, you can't kill them. They just never go away. People declared podcasts dead right after they were invented. You're like, this yeah. thing is going to go away. And then it, it just couldn't be killed. Right. And the same is true of like the social networks. The, the one that's sort of gotten some attention recently uh, yeah, as Twitter has been flailing around was, um, Mastodon. Mm-hmm. But that's just one of them. There's a lot of them, you know. And, and, and the thing to understand about Mastodon is it's not, it is not a Twitter competitor. It is a, system for making an infinite number of twitter competitors right and that's a different thing and it's sort of similar. Where we're like you don't have to know if you're not a podcast producer what are the tools that podcasts work with because you can just go to whatever app you like and you can listen to it people can't imagine what it would be like if you could be like go to whatever social community you want follow whomever you want across whatever platforms you want but we can think of well i can email you no matter what email service you use, and I can do those things. So that's the thing that has changed, is that the people who make those tools that are open and work like the internet was supposed to work are getting traction again.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, people will talk about Web3 or the, or the Fediverse, where social yeah. networks can communicate with each other, mm-hmm. as promising this kind of you know renewed openness and an interoperability online. Do you think it's at that level of like, a revolution along those lines? Or is it a whole bunch of individual people making stuff that just is kind of like that, that
1: is open architecture in that way? I I think because the web is so mature, there's not going to be some like, this replaces that. Like a a generation ago, you did basically have Facebook replace MySpace. Yeah. Right. And when we're in the nascent era of a technology, you can have like, this kills that, iPhone kills Blackberry or, you know, whatever you want to point to. Once they get to a certain scale, like Facebook's never going away. There's billions of people on it. You know what I mean? Like that's not going to happen that way. But the question is, can new things also thrive? And especially, can small local things also thrive? The answer to fast food is bad for you is not an additional fast food chain, right? The answer to fast food is not healthy to eat all the time, is local, sustainable you know, thoughtful neighborhood restaurants and home cuisine and, and, and traditional food cooking from your culture and all those things that we, we instinctively know. Very few people, if you ask them, like, what's one of the most memorable meals of your life will be like, you know, I went to a fast food drive through. Right. right? They're going <laughs> to yeah. talk about a holiday that they spent with family and, and family recipes or a really amazing restaurant that they went to with people they care about. And so to extend that back into technology, you know, the fast food platforms are not going to go away. And, and honestly, nor should they. They have a utility in the ecosystem. It's just that they shouldn't be the only thing. The industry narrative that, you know, a lot of tech media has enabled too, but but, but certainly that the tech industry talks about is like the killer app. This is going to kill the old thing. That's not it. That is not how this works. You know, and, and it's like nobody opens a wonderful neighborhood Italian restaurant and says we're a McDonald's killer. Mm-hmm. It's just not how the world works. It's not either or. That's what I see. I see... The people who run this sort of neighborhood community for obsessives about a particular fandom or really into, you know, a particular political movement or whatever it is, are able to build what feels like a local community, a human scale community. And then it also takes it out of the incessant battles. Now we're not fighting about, you know, content moderation and all this sort of exhausting stuff. We're just talking about the thing we love Mm -hmm. and the idea that you could build technology that is enabling that kind of conversation has become possible. And again, in a way that I haven't seen in a generation.
0: Yeah. You you write about phrases like the human internet or the weird internet, right? As as these kind of values of, of weirdness that getting back to that, uh, you know, that local, that weird, that quirky kind of aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think that there's always going to be a bit of a trade-off between things that are easy for someone with a non-technical background to use, like starting their Facebook account and more human scale, Democratize tools that might also be more difficult and foreboding. I mean, Mastodon, for all its virtues, is sort of famously intimidating for people to, yeah. to get their heads around.
1: I used to think it's either going to be usable or open, and that there was this sort of dichotomy between these, and that that was the trade-off in exchange for the weirdness and the interestingness, the the complexity would arise. I believe that less these days. Mm. I think everybody listening to this knows that you can have a good experience listening to a podcast. Yep. And the challenge about it is it takes time. The incentives are different. I mean, Mastodon's too complicated. And I think the people who make it would tell you that. Like we gotta make it easier, make it simpler. But at the same time, it's a lot easier for me to believe that the open community making Mastodon for free will figure out how to make it easy than that a trillion dollar tech company will figure out how to make their stuff genuinely accessible for somebody that wants to run their own community. Mm. Right, so it's a question of what you're optimizing for. Right, easy to get on board often comes with easy to surveil, and so it's very, very hard to surveil people at scale on the Fediverse and Mastodon. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, it ought to be easier to get started. There's no question about <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm, I'm unambiguous about that, and I think one of the things I try to do in talking to the creators and the developers the coders that make this stuff is I'm like, look. You can have all the you know advanced technical features and, and impressive you know algorithms and whatever that you've invented. It's got to make sense to a normal person, and there's a cultural challenge there because a lot of the people making this stuff they are hobbyists, they are doing it for free, and also they're really proud of their technical knowledge. They want to show it off. They want you to be yeah, impressed yeah. with like like look how hard this was. was. Like that's not the first thing I want to encounter <laughs> when I try your new app is you impressing yeah. me with your technical <laughs> acumen. And that's a cultural shift, but I do think it changes because I think once they get a a sense of, wait, it might not just be us nerds that are looking at this. It might be millions of other people. All of a sudden, they start to get excited about that potential of being, you know, approachable and, and usable by more people. So I think that's part of why I'm in the optimistic mode right now is that they're having those conversations. They're difficult conversations, too, because it's a cultural change, but they're they're having this like, wow, what if we made this stuff usable by lots more people? Yeah.
0: Anil, you know, thanks so much for your insights on this.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Anil Dash leads the team at Glitch, and he's the creator of Cool Stuff Online. If you have topics that you'd love for us to cover in 2024, why not drop us a line at ye oldie email spark at cbc.ca. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samaruit Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Anil Dash, Cece Way, and Alexandre Cooper-Roy. And from the Spark Archives, Kurt Bigenhoe. And as we look forward to our 601st episode next week, let me take a moment to thank all the talented and committed producers who've worked on the show over the years. And to you for listening. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. There's that open architecture for you. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.